correct. I think that Valentine's Day is in just a couple days. So guys, if you had forgotten that, you can thank me now for that little reminder. There's still time. Um, when Heather and I were, were just uh, dating, maybe, maybe real early, maybe the first year we were dating, um, she was out of town uh, on Valentine's Day, and she was coming home a day or two after that. And I thought, uh, oh, I'll just go down and get a card um, the day after Valentine's Day because she's not back yet. I don't know that I was necessarily thinking of getting a deal or not. I, it's just that, you know, well, she wasn't here yet, so I was, well, um, also, guys, let me tell you, the day after Valentine's Day, there are no Valentine's cards. So if you want to get uh, your special someone a St. Patrick's Day card, um, <laughs> then uh, more power to you. But uh, just, uh, yeah, you can thank me for that that update there. Valentine's Day, it's, uh, um, you know, the the whole countries talking about love and, and relationships and, and romance. Um, but when there's love and relationships and romance with ulterior motives, it's a disaster. A girl might treat, or a guy might treat a girl real special on a date, you know, real affectionate, real sacrificial, because maybe he really just wants that goodnight kiss or, or more. Or maybe a teenage girl affectionately pursues the star of the football team, but what she really wants is just the prestige of being seen with him. Or maybe a man romantically pursues a wealthy woman because he wants her money. Or a woman's flirtatious with her boss because she wants a promotion. Or maybe simple things like, uh, like a wife makes her husband's favorite meal to soften the impact that she spent too much money on shoes. So all these little ulterior motives really make a disaster of love, relationships, romance, don't they? Well, I'm telling you this because I think the same thing can be true in the church. The same thing can be true with religion, um, with church activity, with, uh, with even just godliness in general. When we pursue religion for the wrong motives, it is a complete disaster. And that's what our passage is going to be about this morning. Uh, We are continuing our series, almost done with the book of 1 Timothy. Chapter 6 will be in verses 3 to 10. And in this section, Paul is telling Timothy about ulterior motives uh, in the church. There are some of the people in the church that were the most actively involved They were actively involved with wrong intentions. And Paul says to Timothy, you can't let this go on. It'll destroy everything. So this morning we're going to look at three reasons why it's a disaster to pursue godliness or religion, to pursue churchiness uh, for the wrong reasons. And then we'll take just a moment to look, do a little soul searching and ask ourselves, why why are are we here? You know, what's, what's our motives for for participating, for, for even just living the Christian life, what is behind the scenes. So we'll be in 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10. That's, I believe, on page 992. If, um, those Bibles right in front of you if you want to uh, follow along. Okay, reason number one. Pursuing godliness for selfish reasons, it destroys the church. It's a disaster. 
So here's what was happening, verse, uh, starting in verse 3. The first couple of verses says this. Uh, Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So he's setting up this warning to Timothy about people in the church. They were, they were first, they were teaching something different, you know, different than what the apostles had handed down, different than what the scripture said. They were different teaching. Um, what they were teaching was contrary to the healing, healthy, sound words of Christ. Either the words about Christ or the, actually Christ's words that, that he taught. They were teaching something different. In this case, they weren't teaching something less. They were teaching something more than what Christ had said. And, and finally, their teaching did not accord with godliness. It, it didn't help people live transformed lives. It was... It was uh, pushing them to be something else. And we saw earlier in chapter 4, um, what was happening in, in this scenario was, um, was what he called Judaizers, people who were taking the, the traditions of the, the Jewish faith and pressing those on the new, uh, the new church, uh, new believers, new Christians, and saying, you need to do these things also in order to actually be spiritual. Um, we saw just a few weeks back in chapter 4, verse 3, describes these people and they said they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So what was happening in Ephesus is there was this group of people that were in the church, they were really influential and they were promoting um, a legalism on the people saying, uh, okay, this, the God's word is not enough Christ's words are not enough. You also have to do and be these things as well. And that was really destructive in the church. So what happens when people uh, promote this kind of unhealthy teaching? Um, we continue on in this verse 4 of chapter 6, describing this kind of person. It says, he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. <laughs> He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and verse 5, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So Paul has a lot, a lot to say about these people and the result of this kind of, um, this kind of teaching. Uh, it's filled with arrogance uh, controversy, quarrels, envy, slander, evil suspicions. You know, the church is just a wreck when people are in uh, spiritually influential places, but their motives are not right. Business meetings are heated. People divide into factions. There's, there's conflict. Um, Tom Rayner, he's a... Um, a guy who does a lot of research on churches and church growth and church health. And he wrote an article on four kinds of churches that will soon die. And it's kind of a, uh, a scary title. And uh, one of these kinds of churches he calls uh, the Bad Words Church. And he says, if you want to see a good fight, go to these churches. Their business meetings are more contentious than a presidential election. That really says something. 
These are the churches where bullies go unchecked, where personnel committees and boards work in darkness, and where gossip and backstabbing are common. These churches expend most of their energy on bad words. They thus don't have the time or energy to share the good news. And so when this goes unchecked, when there's ulterior motives, it causes dissension and conflict and et cetera and et cetera. And, uh, and you can see how it all starts to unravel. There's, uh, I have this little book. It's on my desk right now. It, it's kind of amusing. It's called Church is Stranger Than Fiction, where uh, cartoonist Mary Chambers. It's not very funny to show cartoons without the picture, but the caption says, There being no other new business, the meeting was adjourned to the parking lot where members said what they really want. So it's this idea of a church situation where there's all this kind of behind the scenes, you know, bickering, talking, and things just start to fall apart. That's what was happening in the church of Ephesus if these teachers just were able to carry on. And what was the root? What was causing all this? Where did this all spring from? The end of verse 5, we're told. These people were imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They imagined or were convinced of, they assumed, they supposed it to be true that by uh, this outward uh, behavior that somehow they were getting some personal selfish gain out of that. That's the root. They convinced themselves that church slash religion was a means for their own selfish desires. And I started wondering, what, what in the world uh, could they get out of that? What would be the, the internal or selfish benefit from, from a false teaching in the church? So I, I just tried to kind of ponder that. And maybe it's just uh, this prestige or admiration this respect, kind of this feeding the spiritual pride of, of a, a group gathering around like, oh, yeah, they're the real spiritual ones. They really know how it is. And getting this kind of following, that kind of, you know, boost, you know, pride. Maybe it's this sense of, of power. They kind of wield it over other people. They can kind of control people by putting these other regulations on them. Or possibly they just wanted to be teachers in the church. It was personal gain in a in a, uh, a setting in the early church where it's primarily uh, a peasant class, maybe that double honor of the teaching uh, pastor would be um, some kind of motivation for them to want to get in that role. Well, whatever it was that they were going to get out of it, it was going to be destructive to the church. The church was going to suffer because of it. Years ago, a friend of mine told this story about uh, passion fruit. Uh, He was living in Hawaii and working just barely enough uh, to surf and eat. And if he and his friends had to decide, they would uh, surf rather than eat. And so they were rather hungry, and they were wandering around there on a hike, and and they came across these passion fruit trees. And uh, they were all ripe and full of passion fruit. And they picked a bunch, and they just started to eat them. It was like jackpot you know we found this it's just a gift a gift out of nowhere and they were just devouring these things so they were really really hungry and after they ate a whole bunch they finally you know kind of caught their breath and slowed down and looked and the fruit was full of maggots and they opened up another one sure enough all the fruit that they just been eating there was worms in all the fruit something looked so good 
It tastes so good. Um, inside, it was very, very bad, and it kind of spoiled the whole passion fruit uh, experience. I, I'm not sure he could still uh, eat passion fruit. So we look at some things people do in the church. It's really good things, whether they're, they're serving or they're giving or they're teaching or they're just really involved or they're singing real enthusiastically, whatever it might be. If the, the maggot of ulterior motives is inside, then, then it's rotten. It kind of spoils the whole thing. So what kind of ulterior motives might drive someone to be religious or get involved in church um, to be godly, so to speak. Uh, now, sometimes, fortunately, this is real the minority, but sometimes it's a completely sinister motive. Like we hear of, of a pedophile working its way into a religious organization um, to, to, to prey on children. It's just horrible. That's a totally sinister thing. And that's why we have all these safeguards set up here and training, etc. Or in a church we were at um, in San Diego, the pastor that came shortly after we left, uh, he'd actually spent time in prison before and became a believer through that experience. Um, it was for um, financial crimes. Um, but he actually used his platform in the church, ultimately, to embezzle money from people in the church. It's horrible. So, you know, obviously the whole church, you know, it's a disaster. They're still trying to recover from that. Sometimes the motives are completely sinister like that. Fortunately, that's, you know, pretty rare. But what's more common? I think a lot of times it's just kind of subtly misguided. We don't even really know what's in our heart and why we're doing the things we do. Maybe... You're involved in church because it will kind of fix some problem in your life or maybe ease your conscience or maybe appease your spouse. You know, the spouse keeps nagging you to come to church. Maybe it will appease your parents. Maybe your involvement in church will kind of help your kids behave better. Whatever these motives are just sort of subtle and like kind of good things, but as the driving force, it really sets us askew. It's, it's really ulterior motives. We gain status or accolades for maybe a position we hold in the church or a role or, or a teaching or something, and uh, it kind of feeds our own ego, and uh, pretty soon it becomes the maggot in the passion fruit of religion. So these ulterior motives are a disease for the whole church, and, uh, and, and, it, and it damages us. And we want to run and flee from those things. But not, not only is it damaging just to the church as a whole, but uh, here's the second reason Paul gives us. Pursuing godliness for selfish reasons, it actually destroys its own reward. So I'll explain. Verse 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what these people supposed is that godliness was some means of gain. And so Paul says, yeah, actually godliness is great gain with contentment. So these people in the church in Ephesus thought they could get some kind of um, financial profit from their false 
teaching from from their their emphasis and from their legalism and he's like yes uh godliness will profit you much as long as you don't worry about profiting from it it kind of flips it all around it's more a redefining what the profit is godliness is the reward So why is it foolish to be driven by this desire for some other material gain or some other other uh, self-seeking interest? Verse 7 says this. Because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. God has showered us with all kinds of good gifts. But we need to hold those with open hands, <laughs> whether it's the gift of, of friendships and relationships or, or health or, or all the good things, you know, foods, all kinds of things. But we need to hold those with open hands before the Lord because we didn't come into this world with anything and we won't take anything out of it. Uh, Job says it this way. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So it's futile because we don't leave this earth with it. Uh, Okay, verse 8. Continue on in in chapter 6. It says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. You know, if you have something to eat and something to wear, then you're fine. If the church is just part of a program for, you know, self-advancement, for your own happiness, then we miss out on its own reward. When I was in high school, it was toward the end of the Cold War. Uh, my dad worked in, uh, he's an engineer, he worked in aerospace with magnets, not like refrigerator magnets, but the kind of magnets that you, you turn on and all the power in Cambria goes off kind of magnets. Um, and uh, he was working on some research with the Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars program. Some of you remember some of these things. And, and this, uh, this line of thinking was to produce a, a rail gun, electromagnetic gun that shoots something about the size of a, of a tape roll um, at, at uh, nuclear missiles. And so it was, it was one... Uh, way they were pursuing to develop a, a missile defense system. And I'd have to say, and the problem with it was uh, what he called hitting the plume. So these uh, detection devices, what they would see is the plume, you know, the, the burning jet fuel coming out of the missile. They, they didn't detect the missile itself. And so you have all this technology to see that, that burning plume, and you target that, but if you hit the plume, what would happen? That thing would just fly through hot, hot gas and nothing, you miss it. So all this you know, research and whatever to target that plume, but if you just hit the plume, you've completely missed it. You want to hit the missile. Similar to a lot of our pursuit of religiousness, of our pursuit of godliness, of our pursuit of church. We have these things in our mind that we really want. We want 
We want the goods out of this. We want what it'll do in my life and in my relationships. And, uh, and maybe it's the pat on the back or the good feeling. And we aim at those things. And when we hit those things, we miss it all. It's like hitting the plume. We've completely missed it. People came to Jesus for uh, a lot of reasons. Uh, he fed them. <laughs> he, uh, he healed them. Uh, he gave them acceptance. He loved people nobody else would hang out with. And these are all a, a big draw. People gathered around him. But when it came time to say, okay, who's going to follow me? He says, uh, this may actually increase your family conflict. Uh, you'll have to give up some things. You might be put in harm's way. It could be a difficult life, but it's so, so worth it. And so if the people are coming after him, shooting for the goodies, then we miss all of it. When we're motivated by the goods, selfish advancement, etc., then we miss the real reward and we miss the goods as well. Uh, here's in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it like this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The righteousness is the reward. It's what we're, we're seeking after. You'll never be satisfied if you're seeking righteousness as the means to something else. Okay, but we don't just miss the reward. Uh, we hit something else. And this is maybe the most tragic of all. So the third reason he gives us of why it's a disaster to pursue godliness for selfish reasons is because it destroys your soul. It destroys your, your heart, your inner, your real self. So we're in uh, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, you know, they have, they have this ulterior motive, something else they're seeking besides uh, Christ and his righteousness. Those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and into a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So if you can kind of follow this train, it's like, a, um, you know, chain links. These things happen in sequence. Uh, it starts with this desire. Maybe it's for um, you know, some kind of personal gain or a status or to fix something in your life, or, you know, make something better, some kind of thing. You, get, you have this desire. That's where it starts. That desire sets you up for a temptation. The temptation becomes a trap or a snare. It's like because of the desire, now the rat trap is set. It's like this tension's on it. You've pulled it back. And then it leads to all kinds of uh, irrational and harmful desires. And the end result is ruin and destruction. 
So we start off just kind of subtly off with these kind of ulterior motives. We might not even be really aware of them. We're pursuing churchiness, but not really for the right reasons. And by doing that, we've set a huge trap for our own souls. Uh, James describes this, this same uh, process in chapter 1 of James 14 and 15. He says, um, well, this is kind of in response to saying that, you know, God, God's not the tempter. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, what? Desire. So it starts with, you know, there's this desire. It becomes a lure, an enticement. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So you start, you're kind of wanting the wrong thing or you're wanting the right thing for the wrong reason, that sets a trap for your soul, and the end is destruction. And verse 10 talks about the scenario in, in Ephesus um, that Timothy and Paul were addressing, and that in particular is money. Verse 10 says, uh, Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is not the only problem in the world, but any problem you look at can come from that. Whenever we have a desire that's skewed, it makes us do all kinds of crazy things. It takes us to places we would never, ever want to go, piercing ourselves with many a pang. This, I, I'm not sure this is a Choya cactus, but they look kind of like that. Um, a place where we camp in the desert is just full of these. And they seem to actually fly almost. You get sort of close to them, and all of a sudden it's just stuck on you. And uh, the prickles, they, uh, or I'm not sure that's a technical word, but you know the spines or whatever they're called, uh, they have these little hairs in it that just grab on. You pull it with pliers, and it just pulls your skin up like that. Um, you just walk near it, and all of a sudden, you're like, how did I end up here? I was just barely off the path, and all of a sudden, I've been pierced with many a pang, and, uh, and it, it's hurting badly. Years ago, well, actually, for about 10 years, um, uh, maybe a little more, our church did trips down to uh, Mexico to build houses with Amora Ministries. Some of you might recognize uh, Nathaniel Cashtan there, um, a small Nathaniel wearing uh, suspenders. And some of you might recognize some other people up there. Uh, so this is an, an Amor house. They're 11 by 22 feet, uh, luxury building. And uh, that, this shows it all framed out. So these are stuccoed. So what we do is we wrap it with, um, with wire, like a piano wire. And the wire holds... Um, the tar paper. And then we wrap the tar paper with chicken wire because that's what the stucco sticks to. And then you stucco on top of the chicken wire. So wire, paper, chicken wire, stucco. First couple of times doing this, you know, you put the wire on, you, you follow the instructions. That's all great. Not realizing how important that is down the road to get it tight. The wire is a little loose and the paper is a little loose. You just can't get the paper tight without the wire tight. And then you try to put the chicken wire on, and the chicken wire is a little loose. 
And up to this point, you're, you're still thinking, ah, it's no big deal, you know, it's pretty good. And then you start to stucco, and you literally hate yourself. It is the worst thing ever. And you keep putting stucco on, and the wire still shows through, the chicken wire. You put more on, you scoop it, and scoop it, and scoop it. And uh, one of the houses we built, you go inside the house, and it had this massive bulge of stucco that just kept going into the wall. Probably a 1,000 pounds of stucco that you could build a shelf on inside the house. because And it's just completely, completely frustrating. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about there. Yes, it's, it's a real, a real uh, thing, still getting over that. So uh, the point of all that is sometimes, often, our motives are just real subtly off. We, we don't really realize, oh, I, I've been coming to church because of, of this thing out here. It's maybe not, doesn't seem crazy, it's maybe just subtly off instead of just coming for the love of Christ. And that's a little off. And then we put some other things on it, and we keep getting involved, and we pack all these things on it, and, uh, and we wonder, what went wrong? Why is this a disaster? Why is church not working for me, so to speak? Why, why all this inner turmoil? Why does this not ring true and feel right and is a good, meaningful, satisfying experience? And there's all these layers, all these habits, all these things you piled up on top of each other. You know, your, your, your paper and your wire and your chicken wire and your first coat of stucco. And it's, it's all, you have to peel that back and look at, at the motives of where did it all go wrong. Here's just a couple of scenarios to try to, to, try to imagine kind of how this might look. You know, situations that, um, where this happens. A college-age girl starts attending a, uh, a church college group or a college ministry. Uh, she's had a couple of failed relationships that's left her feeling kind of alone and rejected. And this group's real supportive, so she really eats it up and gets involved. She doesn't really realize that her involvement is trying to fill that relationship void. As small groups are, are formed, she starts to panic inside because she feels like she might get passed over again and not be in that group she wants to be in. And that drives her to slander one of the other girls in the group. And, uh, and all this thing f- falls apart. It blows up. She, she never wanted that. But that subtle motive was off like, oh, I'm seeking, you know, fill this relationship void. And that sets the trap. It's just ready to spring it's a temptation, and all of a sudden she's saying ridiculous things about another girl to try to, because she's in a panic, because she has to, she can't be left out of that group, and she's set up to, to fail. Or, or maybe the college pastor, sensing her hurt and loneliness, he does his best to encourage her. And driven by that void, she soaks up his comments, and she interprets them as a flirtatious invitation. She makes an obvious pass that he rejects, and sends her further down this spiral of rejection. Or, or worse, he doesn't reject. And it's just a, a, a disaster. So this subtly off motives has set the trap for disaster. A, another scenario. Maybe a man doesn't really feel very appreciated at home. And maybe he's gotten passed over um, at work for promotions. And he's just not feeling, you know, self-confidence is not great. 
And he gets involved in the ministry team at the church and uh, gets a lot of affirmation for that. That desire, that void, that skewed motive has set the trap for him. And so when that, that program is suggested that uh, they drop that because it wasn't fitting what the church was doing, all of a sudden he just has to hang on to that tenaciously and, uh, and he gets angered and he leaves the church and it's a disaster. Because see, the reason for godliness, the reason for church involvement, the reason for religion was, had a wrong motive and it sets the trap for a disaster. You could think in your own mind of all kinds of scenarios where this might happen. When, when the wire's a little wiggly and you extrapolate out to places someone never, ever wanted to go. When the motives are just a few degrees off, the destination can be way off. Okay, so kind of to conclude, what should be our motives? I've kind of hinted at it, but we see at the beginning of the book, Paul makes it real clear to Timothy, in contrast to what these other guys were doing that were causing a problem, they had their own scheme thereafter, in contrast to all that, here is what it should be. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1, verse 5, says this. The aim, the, the end goal, the target, the motive of our charge or teaching is love. Love that comes from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from a sincere faith. So as we look at our own hearts and ask, like, okay, why am I here? Why am I involved? Why am I doing these things? Why am I living this way? Is it out of a love for Christ? A pure love for Christ? And is it out of a pure love for people made in his image? If we're not driven by that kind of love, then our motives are askew and we're setting a, a trap for our own souls, and we're, we're setting ourselves up for being a destructive uh, part of the church rather than a building up part of our church. And trust me, people come to church for a lot of different reasons. Um, I, I like what Pastor Matt Chandler says. He says, uh, church has to be the lamest hobby in the universe. Get a boat, climb a mountain, ski, do anything but church. If you're not doing church for the love of Christ, if you're doing it as a hobby, as a, as a habit, because somebody drug you here, just stop. Go do something else. There's lots of other things you could do with your time. But to do church, so to speak, out of the love of Christ, now that's an entirely, entirely different thing. You, you don't hit the plume, you hit the target, you hit the missile. So here's what we, we need to do. Because a lot of times we don't even know what our motives are, and we need lots of help. Here's how the psalmist um, approached this problem. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try or test me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It, it's a prayer of invitation to God 
to say, look at my heart, expose it, show me what I'm really after, and, and make a, a corrective in it. Uh, I'd like to just invite you to read that together with me. Read it as, as a prayer to the Lord, as an invitation. Um, if you could, I, don't, I wonder if that's kind of small up there. If it is, then, then I've been wrong this whole time. It's small. But, uh, but if you could read this, please, please read it with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting, the way everlasting. Our challenge is simply to check our motives, but not stop there. If our motives are not pure, we need to make some some real heart level uh, correctives. Let your motives be love. Your motives for participating in church, your motives for for religiousness, if we can use that word, your motives for for godliness, let it be love. The love of Christ and the love of his people. Now, this week, as I started off saying, you know, the the nation is celebrating love, you know, even if they they don't know what it is. Uh, They're talking a lot about it. And uh, Valentine's is a day we talk about love, but often it can be a time where we feel uh, lonely. <laughs> a day like that, you know, heightens that, um, that, that divide of, of those who feel like they don't have somebody or things aren't going to work out right or things aren't right here or whatever. But the love of Christ is constant. It, it permeates. It's without exception. And uh, he loves with action. He gave his own self on our behalf, and he did it for love. And that's the only reason that we can really have any sort of true love is because he loved us first. So whether you have someone or not, you certainly have someone. You have, you have the Lord himself um, we want to, at the end of the service, after we sing a song together, um, we're just wanted to give you just a little sweet reminder of, of the love of Christ, uh, which is for us all. And uh, my family, on behalf of the church, is just going to hand out some, some goodies at the door. Uh, it's a little treat if you like sweets. Um, but what it really is is a reminder of, of Christ's love for each of us and, and a little reminder of the motive check. Let our motives be love. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord God, I am so thankful that you loved us first. May we respond to that love by loving you back and by loving each other. And Lord, I invite you to search my own heart. And I pray that that's all our desire this morning, that you, you, would, um, you would pierce in and, and reveal to us what we're really after and that you would draw us to be really after you and uh, avoid all the, the pain and hurt and, and uh, set in the trap by chasing after the wrong thing. God, thank you for your, your love. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.